The following episode of the 9pm edict contains strong language, politics, and twisted thinking. Friday, the 8th of April, 2022. The Autumn Series continues and our special guest today is journalist Greg Mueller. He's done TV, he's done radio, and most recently he's done a podcast documentary series about the early Melbourne hacking scene titled Motherlode. So in this episode, inevitably, we talk about Julian Assange. I think his brother put it best when he said Julian Assange doesn't really care what you think of him. We talk about one of my favourite hacking stories from that time, the Wank Worm. I think the bit that I like the most about the Wank Worm is it did travel around the world and it didn't infect any computers in New Zealand. And of course, we talk about the rapidly approaching federal election and the state of Scott Morrison. Gee, he's not well liked, is he? No, he isn't. Hello, I'm still Garyan. This is the 9pm Hacker History and Looming Election Doomscape with Greg Mueller. Greg Mueller, very welcome to The Edict. Thanks, Still. Uh, the trigger for us talking today is the podcast documentary series Motherlode, all about the early computer hacking activities in Melbourne, here in Australia. Here's part of the trailer. It was like his brain was wired to a computer. You know, just it just he just thought like, you know, he knew he knew how they worked, and and he thought like that. It was extraordinary. And in some ways, it was just like many of these hackers, a kid just exploring the boundaries. But unfortunately, he was also a really clever kid, and so his boundaries were much further afield than the rest of us. <laughs> Hacking, freaking his mind over matter. With no status, money, class or influence, and only our minds, we can control so much. From Ranieri & Co, this is Motherlode. The backstory to Julian Assange and global cyber attacks starts with a few teenage boys hacking international centres of power from their bedrooms in suburban Melbourne. Why do you do it? I know, it's fun. Stealing from other people is fun. No, getting through the system is fun. I really love the series. How did it come about? Well, I mean, I was asked, I was approached to um to do it. I had, I'm, I'm freelance and I had nothing on. So, um, <laughs> um and then when they, yeah, it was a job. But no, when they came to me with the story, you know, I I remember thinking. I read a little bit about it and I read, um, you know, the, the first book you have to read is Sulek Dreyfus' and Julian Assange's book, Underground. So you read yes. this and you go, this is an amazing story. And then you start to realise that there's a bit more to this story that you can find out. And then you get that feeling, you know, as a journalist, I've lived in this place all my life and I didn't know this. Why? This is, this is really fascinating. You know, why didn't this put Melbourne on the map? I mean, that's probably overstating it. <laughs> but it's... Um, <laughs> Might take more than more than some computer hacking to put Melbourne on the map, but I thought um, I thought it just sounded intriguing, and there was enough here that I didn't know about. And when I talked to my friends, they just had a little bit of knowledge, but not enough to understand the story. So that was a great impetus to to get into it. 
So, um, and it all started with that with a conversation with um, one of our first talent, um, Bags Andrew Sidwell, Optimus mm. Prime, mm. Um, and it started from there really, and what he was doing. Optimus Prime, Bitmapper, mm. Optic Surface, they're the Optic Surfer rather. The, I mean, we meet them in episode one, and this is a long time ago. Late 80s, mid to late 80s, these guys are getting their, their Seegers and their Commodore 64s and, and really just exploring with them um, and doing more than what the user manual said, doing more than what John Law said they could do when he advertised the Commodore 64. Oh, that's right. The Commodore 64 family pack is the best way I know to introduce your family to the world of the future. The Commodore 64 is the world's largest selling computer with more than 7 million units purchased worldwide and the world's largest software base for education and entertainment. With this superb Australian reference book included, all for $399 at Commodore dealers now. Are you keeping up with the Commodore? Because the yeah, so these guys, I mean, that's obviously their computer handles and that's what everyone spoke with. Um, and they knew each other by their computer handles on the bulletin boards and they didn't really use their real names. And I, I, I get it. When I was doing this podcast, I had to keep going back to what it was like in the mid-80s. I grew up in that time. I was um, late high school, I guess, in late 80s. And you didn't really get outside your suburb much. Because if you wanted to make even a phone call 50k from your town, it was an STD call that was expensive when your parents would be on to you. Um, international calls, forget it. You didn't have any friends overseas, really. Um, you didn't get out of your suburb and your school community. So when these guys got their computers and then attached to a modem and then the whole world opened up, it must have been amazing. I mean, it wasn't for me because I wasn't doing it. I wish I was now. But it must have been such a revelation. I wasn't into the hacking scene, but but certainly the bulletin board scene. And and at that time, you're right, you could start to connect to the commercial networks internationally, but they were like $3.50 a minute to connect to CompuServe, which is, wow. <laughs> you know, and suddenly when you got a bulletin board in and got a modem, it's now, well, that's just free. Yeah, I can now connect to people. And the idea that you could send email and in the morning you'd get a response or chat or download a file, it was incredible. Yeah, and I think that was really intriguing. And I we, we do talk a lot about that in the first couple of episodes, this idea that, I mean, computer hacking now, that's got a nefarious overtone when you're saying hacking. You think of malware mm. or ransomware. But I don't think it did back then. It was more a no. tinkerer, curious, pioneer kind of thing. And, it actually, um, the word comes out of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where the hackers, uh, this is more in, in like the mechanical engineering sense, the hackers were people who tinkered and fiddled with technology to push it beyond its limits, to find ways of doing things. And the word carried over into the computer world. Yeah, and, and, and that hacking, when you look at the really early hacks we talk about, I mean, I love the fact that Optimus Prime hacked the, the Commodore 64 game of strip poker so it loaded with the digital lady naked yeah. so he didn't have to play. Like we're talking teenage boy motivation curiosity all wrapped yeah. up, you know. Absolutely. And then they'd hack and then they'd hack the copyright protection so they could share it because they were 50 bucks or 60 bucks a game, I think, which back then would have been quite a bit. Mm. Um, that was kind of that early hacking. But then 
one story from this period I've always loved because of the mystery of like who actually did it is the wank worm, which was the hacking of NASA's computer network. That's such a great story, isn't it? We had to do a whole yeah. episode on this story because it's it's amazing. Um, yeah, also just briefly, well, this is when hacking, I guess, turned to have a political bent. Um, yes. Julian Assange, I know, referred to that as the first uh, example of hacktivism. Mm. And, and, and I'd um, probably agree with that. It's certainly the first example in in English-speaking countries. Yeah, Always and it also countries. had that teenage prank element to it, which, yeah. which makes it. Ah-ha-ha, uh, wank, yeah. Well, isn't that great? So when we spoke to Ron Tenkati, who was the head of security at NASA, um, computer security at NASA, they we had no idea what that term meant. We just thought it meant what they explained that it meant was worms against nuclear killers. <laughs> so, so they come up, they log in, everyone at NASA logs in and they get a message saying you have been officially wanked. <laughs> Across the entirety of NASA's network, pretty much. And the the background for this, I mean, it was political. There was um, a spacecraft. Was this the Galileo spacecraft the Gal- from yeah. memory? Which was one of the exploration um, robot spacecraft things, which was powered by uh, what's called a um, nuclear thermal battery. It's basically a, bun- a bunch of plutonium with uh, effectively something similar to a solar cell on each side, it generates heat, it generates electricity, runs forever, many, That's many, right. many years. But the fear was that if this launch failed and blew up, there'd be plutonium scattered all over the place. And remember, this was two years after the Challenger, which did blow up yes. in mid-launch. And so you've, you've, it's good to go back and get the context of this. So people feared there's a general anti-nuclear Feeling. I mean, it's the Cold War. We all think we're going to die in a nuclear holocaust. That's how we grow up. French were testing nuclear weapons at Miraroa in the Pacific. Right. Um, uh, 1983 was the height of the second height of the Cold War, where there really was nuclear fear. Mm. And so, when some, when you know, there were nuclear anti-nuclear protests around the launch of this space probe, and. Two days before the launch, NASA gets hit with this wank worm, which is described as worms against nuclear killers. And I love how the penny just gradually drops that it came from Melbourne. It took a while. First, they thought it was from France, and they went to the French Secret Service and said, there you go, we've packaged it up, this has come from you. And then France had looked at it and said, no, 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 we've got it coming from from Australia. And then there's a little poem underneath, you've been wanked in the ASCII banner, um, which was lyrics from a Midnight Oil song. Again, meant nothing to the people in the US. And again, it goes to, goes to that point, doesn't it, that people were pretty insular. They didn't know much what mm. was going on in different countries. And then, um, I say so the word wank, which is an Australian term, Americans hadn't heard of it. That was a clue. It was from Australia. The Midnight Oil lyrics, obviously the biggest clue. The second attack of this worm because there was a first attack and then there was a, a antivirus antidote written and then the second attack was called the oils worm again meant nothing but to anyone here we know exactly what what that mm. means um not to mention midnight oil you know the poster child for anti-nuclear protests in australia but then i think the bit that i like the most about the wank worm is it did travel around the world and it didn't infect any computers in new zealand that's right. I love that. So it was a DECnet network and there's an area code and it actually went randomly choosing area code numbers but 
directed the computer not to infect any computers with the area code number which associated with New Zealand because New Zealand they were heroes for us at the time they were of course they were standing up to the US no nuclear ships powered ships nuclear armed ships in our waters they were the Rainbow Warrior had just been bombed in Auckland Harbour by the um, French by the French so I like that New Zealand sort of had a role in this and was held up as the hero although they were even held up as a suspect for a minute, weren't they? <laughs> well, that's what, because I thought, oh, hang on, it doesn't infect New Zealand, it must come from there, but then they kept looking. So and you're right, though, about no one's um, ever come forward and claim responsibility. There's still an Interpol out, so I, you know, it makes sense that you wouldn't put your hand up for it. I mean, that's the great mystery. Was it one of this earlier group? Was it, we'll get to, well, we mentioned Julian Assange, we will talk more about him in a second, but... Was it Julian Assange and his cohort, which were like a few years later? Not that many years later. They were kind of like they the, the, next ra- the next group of kids going through. I shouldn't say kids. They were young adults by that time. <laughs> and no one know- Well, a few- no one knows. It has not been revealed. It's funny because I've still had this discussion every now and then. I've had two people tell me they know who it was, but they were different people. Yeah. Um, so... <laughs> <laughs> um, I've got someone saying I know who it was and I'm never going to spill the beans and I've got someone else saying they wouldn't know who it was. They had no idea. So I, I love it. The intrigue <laughs> yeah. continues, you know. We will find out one uh, one day. I wanted to play you a clip, though, about this exploration, about the attitude. Gene Spafford, Eugene Spafford's one of the greats of computer security. He's only a little bit older than me, which is depressing to think about. Uh, he's at Purdue University now. Um, he made this comment, and I will play this this clip now, um, about, about the motivations. There are a lot of thrills that endanger other people's property and safety that, as a society, we don't tolerate because the people seeking the thrills either don't understand the consequences or will go back for bigger and bigger thrills and eventually cause some harm. I've I've talked with investigators who've investigated arson and computer crime, and and the two actually have some parallels in their study. And they found that some arsonists aren't satisfied with small fires, and they keep going back and setting bigger ones uh, until they're caught. And that's maybe something, it, it seems to fit for some people who were breaking into computer systems. Now, his comparison to arson intrigued me because I will recommend people listen to, there's a, a 2017 episode of a background briefing from ABCRN called uh, Burning Obsession, The Fight to Stop Bushfire Arson. And they actually interview some convicted arsonists. It's, I can see you nodding. It's a similar vibe, looking for that kind of thrill and it's, power. It's really interesting you picked that bit out, actually, because I have a, a similar recollection um, when I first started the ABC, maybe a long time ago, I was on a program called Bush Telegraph, and they interviewed an arsonist. He was a guy from the CFA, he'd set fires, then he'd call them in, and then he'd fight them. And he liked the sense of community he got from fighting the fires that he lit. He liked the right. sense of pride he got from, look, look what I've caused. He didn't. And like, then look what I've helped fix. Yeah, that too. I can be the hero. Maybe there's a bit of that too. So there's a bit of ego wrapped up in it. But... um. That idea that you don't really have an intention to burn down someone's house or kill them, so you don't have an intent to mm. do something high-level criminal, but your curiosity about fire and causing a scene and being proud that you're responsible for it 
that's a motivation. I'm not sure where that comparison starts and ends because I, I think if you go back to the hacker ethic, they had this thing of cause no harm. Mm. And, and they did. They'd break into systems and they'd look around and they'd, but they wouldn't really damage anything. The wankworms is a classic example. The wankworm, when they logged on, they were told all their system files, all their files had been deleted. And they panicked because they're two days before a launch and they thought everything had been deleted. As it turned out, nothing had been deleted. It was just, it just scared the shit out of them. Um, so no harm was done in one sense. The files weren't deleted, but you caused a lot of panic um, and you made a big name for yourself. I, I don't know. It's a really interesting comparison. You're right, because the realm, that hacking group that we looked into, they did do that. They did just get bigger and bigger until they got caught. Mm. And then we'll talk about this, but the next group, Julian Assange's group, went even further but again didn't damage anything so maybe it's about intent that's a very good point criminal intent mens rea all of that stuff well look this is the point where julian assange does come into the story uh he were i know uh, and knew at the time he was a junior system administrator for suburbia which was a, a free internet service provider in melbourne and they'd grown out of the bulletin board scene that I'd mentioned previously before there was commercial internet in Australia. How does he progress from just being a young guy who's part of this scene into, into what we know him as today? He says, please summarise two entire <laughs> episodes of the podcast in two minutes. Go. And 30 years of history. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Look, I think... <laughs> I think we've stepped on from our first episode where people are cracking copyright protection and making games way faster. So we've moved on from that. But the intrigue and the curiosity is still there. But now we can have political impact. So I think, you know, we know Assange always has a political motive. He's driven with mm. political principles more than most of us, I'd say. Um, so when his hacking group, the International Subversive, started, they targeted US military institutions. They were way more provocative Again, didn't damage anything. No one went to jail for these crimes. The, the law was interesting at that time because the laws were so new, the judges didn't know how serious it was. Oh, mm. my God, we're all relying on computers and you've undermined our faith, but you didn't really do any damage. But now we're all really scared and you've, you've trespassed into people's systems, but no one was really hurt. And you can see them going, oh, I don't know what to do. Should you go to jail <laughs> or not? Uh. So no one went to jail. And I think that uh, but they did warn Assange, you know, you're, if you're as intelligent as you think you are, we've got the transcripts from the judge on his sentence, you won't come back here. <laughs> mm. I'd love to speak to that judge now and say, what is he <laughs> But Has, Haven't times changed? Yeah, exactly. So, um, so Julian Assange, I think, really brought a lot more politics to it. His hacking group uh, was, was three. They were called the International Subversives and there was Prime Suspect Tracks and and Julian Assange under the uh, handle Mendax. Mendax, yes. And it's really hard to – what I liked about this podcast is is way back from then they were political, they were smart, they, they loved showing incompetencies of institutions and, and pointing out flaws and pointing out the fuck-ups of – That's an uh, ego thing. It is. I'm is smarter ego. than those, you know – that Those is Muppets. Yeah. yeah. That's right. But with a real political uh, mm. motivation. No, I don't, you know, I think that's fairly well established. So I think in international subversives and then in the suburbia.net, the, the um, internet service provider you mentioned, uh, you see a fearlessness. Um, 
I love, we've got a great story in one of the episodes where a guy in Melbourne, David Gerard, wanted to set up an anti-Scientology website. Now, David Gerard, by the way, friend of the pod. He now uh, is author of the book Attack of the uh, Attack of the Fifty Foot Blockchain, yes, uh, yes. which is one of he's he's been on an episode before. People people know David's mad, I am wonderfully mad. Great person to talk to. I got to say, uh, I really enjoyed that interview. So he tried to set up an anti Scientology website. That's going to cause trouble. Um, they're going to be litigious. Julian Assange just went, yeah, great. This sounds fun, you know, and then pushed it. And, Pop, and David Gerard thinks got, got threats of defamation and Assange was just fearless in, mm. in pursuing this. There was no – he had a sense that he didn't agree with what Scientology were doing and no one was going to scare him off. Titanium balls, I think David Gerard said, mm. um, about Assange's approach to Scientology, the, hosting the Scientology site that he had written. Um, I think – what I love doing about this podcast is international subversive of suburbia.net and you can just see WikiLeaks being built, you know, block by block. And and then the, the cypherpunks, which is perhaps my favourite episode, that's fascinating. And the um, encryption and decryption and the, the political idea of liber, uh, the libertarian ideas, the far right ideas, the human rights worker ideas, all melded up into this into this concept of of um, protection of, of privacy, I guess, through encryption. Mm, mm. Um, again, it, it all sort of led to an anonymous encrypted dead drop, which WikiLeaks was. So if our podcast does anything, I think it explains where that came from. And it, it does so quite well. To wrap up with Julian Assange, I mean, it is unfair to get you to summarise hours <laughs> of material in a couple of minutes. What do you make of him as a human being now? Hero or villain? There you go. Let's reduce it to... <laughs> A binary. Uh, I mean, because various people have various thoughts on this, obviously. Exactly. Um, it's, it's a really hard one to answer because we went into this and we go, we're not going to make an anti or pro Julian Assange podcast. We're not going to do an anti or pro WikiLeaks. It, it, the story of WikiLeaks has been well told. We know what they did. Um, we're looking at what led up to it. But the personality of Julian Assange is all over WikiLeaks and you can see it and I think that, that comes through. Mm. There's a there's a playfulness. He's funny, you know. I mean, I love that. Uh, um, just before he started WikiLeaks, he sent a letter to Kevin Andrews, the, the Minister of um, Immigration at the time, with his cultural values test, and just took the piss out of it in a really ironic way. Look, look, it looked like he was pedantically arguing the fact that our high rise buildings start some start at zero in the floor numbering, and some start at one, and the inconsistencies un Australian. <laughs> and through and through that. Um, how to dig at the cultural and values test. So the sense of humour, I think, is there. The, the, doesn't suffer fools mm. and, and cuts people down pretty severely. Look, I, you're right. I spoke to lots of people, big fans, big supporters of Julian Assange, and I spoke to people who have fallen out with him, and lots of people have. And I think his brother put it best when he said, Julian Assange doesn't really care what you think of him. Um most of us, when we're talking to someone, we want that person to to validate us and to mm. make us feel good. Yeah, maybe not like us or become a friend, but at least accept that what we're saying is right yeah. and not stupid and all of that. Yeah. But Julian Assange has the ability to, to maintain, no, no, I think I'm right, I don't really care what you think. And if you're going to poke, you know, the US military-industrial complex, you probably have to have an attitude like that, um, a relentlessness to, to keep going. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that 
you wouldn't um you wouldn't be able to do what he did unless you had that sort of type of personality. Look, people said that's another interesting thing that that WikiLeaks has become a bit of a personality cult around Julian Assange when it was supposed to have started <laughs> a bit off of as, one. <laughs> a bit of one. Well, they're synonymous now, aren't they? WikiLeaks and Julian Assange. Yes. But it started off as a wiki, you know, an open source collaborative space where everyone can add. But it's not turned out like that. And there's been criticism of that. And I can see both sides to this story. I can see that's certainly happened. And then he was poking some pretty big bears that a lot of people probably weren't prepared to to stand by him with. You know? mm. When Julius Baer, the bank, sued them, the guy who got sued ended up going, well, I've had enough of this. I want to move on with my career. So was, is it, was he a narcissist and developing a personality cult or was he just the last person standing? Um, there's quite a few different ways to look at that. I was always conflicted uh, when, for example, the Walkley Foundation gave him a, an award for journalism and Julian Assange uses the word, um, the term scientific journalism, meaning here's all the source material. But I thought, no, the journalist's job is, is not just to dump stuff out there, it's to actually provide the narrative, to actually explain, to check that, you know, is this true or not. Um Curate it in a way. Curate it, yeah. yeah, yeah. Help, help me through that, and and just dumping stuff out there. Well, no, it's not my job to go through it. It's your job to go through it and tell me what's important, what's true, what's false, or whatever. Um, and I mean, at one level, oh, he was whistleblowing on stuff, but I said, yeah, but also crimes were probably committed along the way so you can't you can't kind of complain that you're in jail because you probably did do crimes and now we're waiting to see how that turns out because uh, the story is by no means over yet and maybe it will, I'm wondering whether this is a story that'll ever end because mm. we've had so many appeals we'll have cross appeals there's still avenues to appeal open to both sides I understand and if he end up going to the states there'll be appeals there you could end up with what some people are now suggesting, that Julian Assange is, is just being punished by the process. Um, and that could go on forever, um, yeah. realistically. You, you've well, got the go- Americans have form for that on a certain little military base in Cuba, for example. We'll just, <laughs> exactly. We'll just send you there. Well, Australia does it as well with asylum seekers. We'll just exactly. stash them somewhere and that's it. And so whether they have anything on him, this is fascinating, whether WikiLeaks is publishing or journalism. Um you kind of get to the point of what is journalism. You don't you don't get a ticket yeah. and claim yourself to be a journalist. You can film anything in the street and call yourself a citizen journalist now. Mm. There's, there's, there's issues around that. Well, but- I've always thought, and we had all these fights back in about 2007, what is journalism? Mm. And uh, I ended up getting quite cranky. It's not about the person, it's about the act. You yes. know, um, in the same way that a chef is a chef when they're in the restaurant cooking fine meals for other people. But if they're home putting, you know, cheese on toast together for a quick snack, they ain't a, they ain't a chef there. It's the act. Um, and I was really pleased that some of my ranting uh, led to Scott Ludlam picking up on some words when he was a senator. And in the Commonwealth legislation, the definition of a, of a journalist in that is about someone who is doing acts of journalism within these criteria, not that they're the member of a trade union, the MEAA, mm. or that they're employed by a certain kind of organisation or not employed. Um, but you're right. Well, 
WikiLeaks is a publisher because they publish stuff. There's no argument there. <laughs> They're sticking things on the internet. Is it journalism? I mean, they say they verify their leaks, so there's a little bit of curation going on. Mm-hmm. Scientific journalism is, um, like you said, printing the source documents alongside your story. Um, Which is good, linked to your sources and in many online uh, environments. I mean, I, I write for online mastheads and that is something we generally do. If we're mm. quoting a press release, we link to it. If we're quoting a report, we link to the report. And, in fact, if we don't now, people come at us and go, well, wh- where have you linked to that information? And sometimes just, well, it's in a book. It's in a conversation I had. It's... It's it's a fact that we all know sometimes. Now, of course, jet fuel can't melt steel beams, but it can make it soft and bendable. So when I've it comes gone down on to a tangent, <laughs> <laughs> but when it comes down to what he did from a criminal aspect, now um, I think it's unclear because and that's mm. why in, in the last episode we included the the court case in 1970, 71, I think it was, which allowed it ended up going to the Supreme Court, the United States versus the U- New York Times. It allowed the New York Times to safely print the Ellsberg leaks, Daniel Ellsberg leaks, the Pentagon Papers, which showed that, guess what, the Vietnam War is not going so well. Yeah. So, so and they, they won that under the First Amendment. And if you think about it, what's Julian Assange done that's different? He, he claims he didn't hack any of this material, and there's not a lot of evidence to suggest he had. Mm-hmm. He didn't have to. You know, he just set up a dead Dropbox. Um he perhaps facilitated the leak but didn't do the hacking. So, And interestingly, though, one of the, the points of the American case against him is that uh, he induced Chelsea Manning to provide material, encouraged. Mm, so that's, that's incitement. To com- then Chelsea Manning committed yes. the crime. So that's that incitement. Increases, it does. It is incitement. It increases the criminality. Look, that hasn't been tested. So but that hasn't been proven, yeah, yeah, yeah. as far so, as I know. Um, so that's what they call it Insert now. Insert the, the word alleged a lot in the previous <laughs> thing because <laughs> I haven't followed it in detail. Yeah, but... But it, they call that the New York Times problem now. Um, mm. what, what's the difference? I mean, I, I, you know, we've all seen the collateral murder video and I think I mm. might have seen it the first time on Four Corners or 7.30 or something. Mm. So who's responsible for me to seeing that? Is it is it Four Corners? Is it New York Times or is it... Julian Assange. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a chain. It's a tricky area to get into because you're rubbing up against the First Amendment and free speech. So it's interesting. I, I, it's hard to know which way this is going to go, but I think mm. it'll just continue to go on without a resolution, in which case he will be effectively shut down. Yeah. I, I, I think you're right. He will just be shunted through the process forever and ever and ever until he gives up or someone gives up. Yeah. Or he grows old and dies because, I mean, he's not looking healthy because he's no. inside so much. And look, that's the other thing with all the people I spoke to about Julian Assange. So some people have had falling outs with him and um, and that's pretty common. We've read all about that and there's, he's got his supporters. But I think universally, I don't think I ever spoke to anyone that said, oh, no, he's getting what he deserved. He's being treated okay now. I, I think everyone thinks he's getting a rough deal, mm. um, like him or not. That's a bit irrelevant. Well, if nothing else, uh, justice should be swift and accurate and, you know, this has been going on how many years now? Oh, yeah. When did he go into the Ecuadorian embassy? Was it 2010 or something like uh, that? It feels like – I mean, yeah, it's more than – it was ten, more than 10 years ago. I, I, I have that in my head. Mind you, that was his choice. 
and that, that and that comes up a lot too. That's right. Some people said people if you just gone, oh, he's a p- political prisoner in the embassy, and I go, no, he's a, a resident in the embassy. He can come out any day he likes, and will then be arrested for breaching bail. But and look at Chelsea Manning, who actually did the leaking, served a few, few years in jail, and is now out. I mean, some yeah. people say, well, that could have been Julian Assange if he just faced the music straight up. Maybe, but, maybe but it's not. It's hypothetical. But, we don't know. Yeah, yeah, uh, different. Different cases. Mm. Yeah. Look, we could um, talk about Julian Assange for days, uh, but we won't. Uh, Let's change the subject and uh, let's also take a brief break while I do the housekeeping. These plague years really have screwed up our sense of time, haven't they? Uh, Julian Assange went into the Ecuadorian embassy in 2012, so pretty much a decade ago, possibly even slightly less, um, and uh, came out of there in 2019. So he was there for, what's that, seven years or something? It seems longer. (sighs) I don't know. Um, Julian received... Julian, I don't know him, Mr Assange, uh, received his Walkley Award for an outstanding contribution to journalism in 2011. What I noticed, though, is in 2019, uh, about the time he was released from uh, or left the embassy, uh, in 2019 uh, they issued a statement which reads... In 2011, WikiLeaks, with Julian Assange as its editor, received a Walkley Award in Australia for its outstanding contribution to journalism. Walkley judges said WikiLeaks applied new technology to, quote, penetrate the inner workings of government to reveal an avalanche of inconvenient truths in a global publishing coup. And they do mention, the, uh, in particular, the collateral murder video. Uh, They talk a a bit more about uh, the achievements, uh, but then wrap by saying, Julian Assange's personality and his more recent actions do not weaken the principle driving the Walkley Foundation's concerns in this matter, that when he released the original WikiLeaks material in 2010, Assange was assisting a whistleblower to reveal information in the public interest. Yes, I know there was a, a bit of a discussion about... Does this man deserve to have such a uh, a major journalism award? Uh, if you're not an Australian, um, the Walkleys are roughly equivalent to the uh, well, they are equivalent to the Pulitzer Prize in the United States uh, and other such things. Very prestigious, indeed. Um, another source we did mention Silet Dreyfus uh, Dreyfus's book Underground. Links in the website, of course. Another good book on the topic is by Andrew Fowler. It's titled The Most Dangerous man in the world, Julian Assange and the WikiLeaks fight for freedom. It's been updated in recent years. A very good read, very balanced, very detailed. Recommended. Now, the next episode of this podcast uh, will not be in the coming week uh, because it's the short week before Easter, so I'm taking the week off. The week after that, though, I am 95% sure my guest will be friend of the pod, author and commentator John Birmingham back once again. Uh, That happens to be another short week, the short week before Anzac Day, uh, and the election will have been called by then. So as you can imagine, we'll have nothing to talk about. So uh, if you have 
any trigger words or a conversation topic uh, in in your back pocket for uh, John Birmingham, do get that to me by by the end of Easter. Let's say you might have a couple of more days after that, but uh, be early. This episode, of course. Uh, like all of the episodes uh, of this podcast, has been made possible by you, the generous listener. Uh, and, of course, for this this series, it's thanks to all the people who contributed to the 9pm Autumn Series 2022 crowdfunding campaign. You're all listed on the website. Today, I want to thank, in particular, those who uh, contributed in the most common category, one trigger word. Uh, and in alphabetical order, let me let me say thank you to Andrew Kennedy, Bruce Hardy, Daniel Dwyer, Dave Gorkroger. Now, this is interesting because because Dave messaged me to say it's pronounced Gork, G-O-R-K hyphen Roger. But that still doesn't tell me where is the emphasis on the syllables. Is it Gorkroger? Is it Gorkroger? Is it Gorkroger? Is it Gork? Thanks, Dave. Uh, Frank Filipponi, once more, thanks, Frank. Joanna Forbes, who I will say is one of the people who solved the Hill of Dead Pets Challenge. Um, people who follow me on Twitter will know that uh, every now and then I will tweet passing the Hill of Dead Pets, um, which, which, um, which people have asked about. What does this mean? Well, there is on my website uh, a challenge. I think you can work out from my tweets uh, where the Hill of Dead Pets is. Uh, the challenge is not only to the name its location, but also tell me why. Tell me why it's the Hill of Dead Pets. That's the, the key thing. Uh, there's a blog post on my website about that, and I'm going to reveal the answer at the end of this month, the uh, 30 days in April. Yes, 30 days in April. Um, and that, that's a Saturday, and I will reveal the answer at 8pm Australian Eastern Standard Time that night. Uh, you can join Joanna Forbes and many others uh, who have worked this out. It's easier than people think, I think. Anyway, uh, thank you to Youp DeVitt, Mark Newton, hi Mark, Michael, Crow Michael Cowley, sorry, Nicole Coombe, Paul Williams, Peter Blakely, Peter Blakely again, Peter Sanderlands, Rick Heyman, Tim Johns, and two people who choose to remain anonymous. Uh, thank you to all of you. More names next time. If you'd like to uh, join these people in supporting the podcast, just go to the 9pmedict.com slash tip. That's the 9pmedict.com slash tip. Uh, and do the needful. The explanation's a bit kind of all over the place there, but you're, you're smart people. You'll work it out. And now for something completely different. Here's Julie from Ohio speaking at a Donald Trump rally earlier this month. The election, I believe, was stolen. But we know that. Space Force has it all. Trump has all the, all the information. It's going to be overturned. What do you think Space Force has? Space Force is a military branch of the, you know, just like the Army, the, you know, all the military. And they literally, walk up here, okay. they literally, the night of the election, they literally watched the election be stolen. They know, they watermarked the ballots, 
They know exactly what happened with every ballot. They know what fake ballots, all right? They saw, they knew the election switches. They know what countries were involved. They know, they followed the money. They know what every politician that's been paid off. They know there's, um, there was 260,000, 269,000 uh, sealed indictments, but I think it might even be up to 500,000 sealed indictments. And I believe that we're going to have an emergency broadcast and the military is going to come in with martial law and we are going to be shown eight hours on, eight hours off of videos for seven days, the world, and they're going to be showing us taped uh, tribunals, taped confessions, and the world is going to be awakened to what's really going on with the deep state. Oh my God, I hadn't seen that before. Oh, I don't know what to say about it. <laughs> well, I'm going to, I'm going to use okay. that reaction well i don't know what to say about it either that i should say is the right side broadcasting network rsbn uh which is a media company that essentially media companies perhaps a bit strong they live stream all of donald trump's rallies on youtube is what they do so they're gonna they just let these people talk to camera so still here we go back to that other topic are they journalists are they journalists wow i mean they're publishers. Jur they're publishers. <laughs> journalism doesn't have to be good. No. That's the thing. It doesn't have to be accurate. It can be shit journalism. Okay, how I feel about that is they are purely saying, here's the rally, here's what Trump said, here are what people at the rally are saying. Accurate. And if they present it. that uncritically, that's that's no different from the ABC broadcasting Clive Palmer's speech at the National Press Club. Same yeah, deal. Very similar. Yeah, except possibly the questions from the audience are a bit better when it's professional journalists. Yeah. But is I, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, it's hard to say. I, I'd like to say no, but then with the advent of citizen journalism, which the internet's allowed, it's a pretty malleable term. Mm. Maybe to the point where it's meaningless. I come back to the point that... The tradition of neutrality and and then into the sense of balance that we have now in journalism was a 20th century phenomenon that you go back before that, the early newspapers were, we, I mean, we would write them off as opinionated rags and you think someone like, I don't know, Andrew Bolt or Alan Jones is opinionated now, go back to the 1700s and 1800s and look at, earlier newspapers and mm. they just let rip um the similar sort of thing anyone with a printing press and the money to do it would print a pamphlet and out it would go every afternoon and it, yeah. <laughs> the more i think about it the more that is that essentially is uh and we've got a spectrum from those outlets that try their hardest professionally to get it right and be accurate and fair, and I, I want to use the word fair rather than neutral or balanced or whatever. Hmm. You know, the, 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 if a fact is a fact, you you establish that. To you know, opinionated garbage, or in this case, these secret Jewish space lasers are going to save us, except they're the enemy, or something. I. Hmm. 
it's a really, it's really, I find it's a really interesting topic. I, th- I do think, I don't want to poo-poo it too much, I think there's excellent journalism still going on and and we still have the capacity to do really good journalism and you see it, it happens. Um, but the fact that anyone can publish just, uh, yeah, you, maybe maybe that's a good word to use. You've just broadened the spectrum to the nutters <laughs> <laughs> and it invited them into this profession. See, with Motherload, it was pretty difficult because you, you're talking about Something that happened years ago, so people's mm-hmm. memories have faded. You've got a lot of ego wrapped up in this. Sometimes um, memories are exaggerated. Mm-hmm. So, and then a lot of people just didn't want to get involved. And I'm sure it's because Julian Assange is still such a hot topic. I spoke to lots mm-hmm. of lawyers. It's interesting, a lot of lawyers in the cases are now judges. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's quite a few Supreme Court judges and County Court judges who were barristers in, at the time of these cases. None of them really wanted to talk about it and you can understand that i'm not really being critical of that but um so we tried as hard as we could to get source documents for this and i was surprised how difficult that was i mean it's in the pre-digital age right these kids as like these kids as they were then were using computers but i i remember it you know mid 80s uh well this is a bit before then but Places, even the media were only getting their first computers in newsrooms in the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, Courts yeah. way behind. So when I tried to do some FOI requests with the AFP, the Australian Federal Police, they said, oh, it's all hard copies, it's in a building in Canberra, we can't get in because it's locked down, so we can't. Oh, this is during the pandemic. Not- yeah, and then when the yeah. lockdown in Canberra lifted, I rang up and said, oh, well, okay, let's go. We can go look for them now. They said, oh, no, we still can't look for them because it's – um." Uh, well-being reasons. <laughs> I hate that word. <laughs> I mean, I had this vision what? of all the AFP officers doing Pilates and they couldn't go in and do their search. <laughs> but, and then they said, oh, you look, could use a bit of Pilates. So <laughs> I mean, I, I can't talk. But. And then they said, oh, look, your request is too big and voluminous and too complex. Can you narrow it? And I've seen those, you know, lawyers going to court with those trolleys full of folders. Sure, there's probably too much. So I narrowed it. Then they said um, they've been destroyed. <laughs> I thought, oh, that's... And then um, so I put in another request. And then they said, oh, that's too voluminous. And I said, but hang on, you just told me it was destroyed. And then they asked for an <laughs> extension. Uh, and then the, off- the Australian Office of Information, I put it, I appealed to them saying the AFP aren't really doing what they're supposed to. And they sided with me saying, yeah, there's no extension approved. You don't have a reason. And then the AFP said, oh, well, we've got nothing to show you then and it's rejected. And then I love this, the kicker. It's just a beautiful way to finish this interaction, which went on for months. Was, uh, is there any, have you been happy with your interaction with the AFP? Do you think there's anything we could have done better? <laughs> How likely are you to recommend us to a friend or family? <laughs> I was always like, can you give us a Google review? It was oh. nuts. But that level of, and I don't know, you come across this as a journalist sometimes, you come across as this incompetence or is it, conspiracy and, and you usually should choose incompetence yeah um it's easy to think conspiracy and that's kind of silly that they'd let you do that but you should choose incompetence i i think so I, when you're dealing with paperwork from 30 years ago yeah i spoke I to a know. former afp guy who didn't want to be recorded and i said that same thing to him i said they've left me with an option of incompetence or conspiracy he says no no there's a middle one uh-huh. it's deliberately incompetent being shit oh. works for them that is true. Yeah, so maybe there that is, a, is third, true. a third path. Anyway, digress. 
Time for some trigger words, Greg. Okay. Now, as regular listeners to the pod will know, this is the glass jar of transparency, which used to once upon a time have Makona coffee in it. It now has folded up bits of paper. Each one is a word chosen by a supporter in the hope that it will trigger a conversation. Now, we will draw one out momentarily, but Michael Rowe has sent something in specifically for us, which is Pacific Island. He does say, okay, technically two words, but it's a proper noun, so I think I can get away with it. I can, yes. Pacific Island. (laughs) What does that trigger? Wow. Okay, it's triggered three things. (laughs) Okay. Firstly, lovely sea kayaking on a turquoise sea in an atoll and, and That's right. banana lounges. and kayaking instructor. <laughs> I was, yeah. I do what? like sitting in a boat. But then in the context, what, a couple of days ago, the IPCC report came out again. I think of atoll islands are based on atolls being inundated with seawater and food security becoming an issue and crops being inundated with seawater and, and uh, lack of protein in the Pacific Ocean. So I think... They're at the forefront of climate change, mm-hmm. um, and I think Australia's probably going to have to face that. And then we're coming up to an election, so I, this is, this oh, yes. is my third vision. As, who was it? Was it Morrison, Abbott, and Dutton? At the, yes. Was it the Asia-Pacific Forum or something? Joking something about like the that. water lapping up to their doorsteps, which was yes. just extraordinary. And then Morrison saying, excuse me, guys, there's a boom, being the one who... Uh. Who understood how the media works? So Dutton, um, of course, is the brightest crayon in the box. You know? it's, just, it's just appalling, isn't it? When that uh-huh. when that got leaked. But anyway, so there's my three thoughts. Well, what came to my mind? Uh, a certain set of Pacific Islands, Solomon Islands, been ah, in the news yes. a lot this week with China. Uh, with Ch- China. China, China, <laughs> yes, and all there. The thing that hit me about that in the news, and I did have a rant about this in a recent episode, is that they'll have a naval base 2,000 kilometres from Australia close. And I said, so twice the distance from London to Berlin. I go, <laughs> guys, you know, that's they're perfectly entitled to have a naval base there if they want. The Solomon Islanders are happy for it. Fine. Well, I mean, we, we don't have to like it. We didn't but, build one there. Well, Yes. Uh, when when Huawei was going to be giving them some fibre optics, Australia came in quick smart the other year and said, no, 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 we'll give it to you for free. You can have fibre internet for nothing. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, Australia always thought, it, you know, it's, it's perhaps, perhaps we overestimate our realm of influence in the Pacific. <laughs> or, or anywhere in, in, a, in a way. I, I'm always amused when... World leaders are saying something and then you get Australia going in, oh, we're going to sanction Russia. Russia doesn't give a fuck about Australia. I had the similar thought with the subs, you know, the whole fucker about the subs and we're doing it to protect ourselves and the threat of China is always looming and we're going to make, what are we, are we going to get nine subs and I think we're going to get them in. nine is, the well, hang on, 12, yeah, we were going to go 12 diesel electric but nine nuclear because they can stay on station longer so you and only I think need... Nine rather than 12. And how long are they going to take? Is it 20 years or 15 years? Oh, to the start. I mean, again, no one knows because they haven't even finished the 18-month, like, feasibility study. They've only just got the thing in place because suddenly you've got the UK and the US who have shared nuclear secrets for decades suddenly having to go, oh, Australia's in there now. And I imagine all the security guys in both nations going, "We're, we're doing what now? Where 
<laughs> I can just see, you know, can you imagine the, the high-level meeting with the CCP when this was announced and the China Communist Party going, my God, we've only got 20 years to, to prepare for Australia building nine yeah. subs. And from their point of view, they'll go, oh, yeah, we'll increase production of our subs by 4%. That should cover that. <laughs> Sorted. Next. <laughs> look, look, I, I, I don't know. It hasn't been thought through. Um, we managed to piss off the French quite nicely. We pissed off the Americans last week because we cancelled the Sky Guardian cruise missile project. Some of that's going off to pay for the new $9.9 billion cyber package, which was announced in the budget, or along with the budget. It's Red not spice, new money. It's, it? it's, hmm? Red Spice. Was it Red Spice? Red Spice. Red Spice. <laughs> oh, as we're recording this on Wednesday the 6th, today the Australian Signals Directorate is up before Senate estimates, and uh, Penny Wong is very interested. Senator Wong is interested in where the name Red Spice came from. And and she asked Defence, uh, and Defence said you should ask ASD the other day. So um, it stands for something, doesn't fun. it? Yes, um, I, yes. I will look it up because it's it's silly because there isn't actually a P in it. Um, here we go: resilience, effects, defence, space, intelligence, cyber, and enablers. It's like that'll catch on. Eh. Uh, but red spice, red spice. But what was it? Ten billion, I think. No, yeah, nine point nine. But mm. uh, one point three billion comes from cancelling. Um, no, not the cruise missiles. Um, Sky Guardian was the armed drones, the kind of thing that Ukraine's making uh, good use of by going and taking out tanks and things. Reaper slash. Hellfire missile, fire thing, predator drones, that sort of thing. So it's a late late model predator drone. The the British have them and they call them the protector uh, and things. So we cancelled that after having negotiated that. So we've pissed off the Americans there. That was going to be another sale uh, from General Atomics who who make that. And another three million comes from just oh we cancelled the French subs so in the next couple of years we're not going to be spending anything on building subs so we'll, we'll take some of that money that we were going to have there, and the rest of it is just stuff the Australian Signals Directorate was doing anyway. They've just bundled it in. It's now part of part of that. Um, so so thank you, um, Michael Rowe for Pacific Island. Uh, that's. <laughs> That's how that started. But I am going to draw one out of the jar, unless you have to go somewhere suddenly. No. Okay, good. Oh, this is from Paul Williams. Hello, Paul. And the word is cannon, but C-A-N-O-N with one N. And he suggests this could be like around the musical term for mm -hmm. a repeating tune. Uh, the official storyline, like is this Star Trek canon or not, or is it fanfic, uh, or the camera brand, or right. I'm also thinking canon, it's a rank in the Catholic Church. Um, are any of these appealing to you as a thing to talk about? I like, I, I think of Puckabell's canon, I think of yep. the music that's played in lots of weddings. Yes. Um, oh, Any musician, classical musician who plays for weddings is sick to fucking death of that tune. <laughs> I'm sure they are. <laughs> and I will uh, always be with you. Who is that? That's what's her name? Yeah. <laughs> and, oh, and, the, and the canon with the, the Catholic connotation. 
I don't know why the Catholic Church still exists. Oh, well, I'll, I'll get Father Carl back on and he could explain to you sometime. <laughs> I mean, I get, I get why it exists, but it was effectively running a, an abuse ring for years. Uh, uh, yeah. Brackets, think, hashtag not all priests, but, you know. Exactly, um, exactly. Of course, they've got, you know, all tied with the same brush and all that thing. But yeah, they, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've often thought, um, sure, abuse of that type happens can happen anywhere, scouts, swimming, athletics, whatever, and mm. we know it. But I just feel that if it happens in one of those other institutions, they'll probably call the police. Yeah. And for me, that was the, the big difference. They just tried to hide it and move it around. and and um, Yeah, it's, it's, it's the fact that it, it was a known thing and the institution protected the powerful. Mm. That's right. Um, so um, I, 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 I do struggle with... with um, with, with the fact that we still have Catholic schools. <laughs> but anyway, that's another topic. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, it's it's that whole separation of church and state thing. I mean, I, I went mm. to a school that was run by a religious organisation, not the Catholics. It was Uniting Church. Um, but it, it it did feel odd, and I, I, I think I even worked, worked out as a kid that, well, you're teaching me maths and geography and English and history and whatever it might be, but surely the, the spiritual stuff is what happens at Sunday school. And we, you know, my mother would early up anyway. She she go to church many Sundays, not every Sunday, and we'd go along. Um, and I thought these are about two different things. And I think as I got whole, older, they they really are about different topics. I get frustrated when people like blame religion for not being scientific or something. I said, "Well, it's not. It's not about that. It's about other questions, and mm. they can fit together quite happily." They say, "Oh, well, the world was created by the Big Bang, yeah." And I said, "Yeah, but why? <laughs> there's, there's a why. <laughs> why? Why? Like, why? That's that's what hits me. Why any of this?" I, I mean, there, there could just be nothing forever. Why is there anything? Yeah, does it need a why? I went on a raft trip once, and I never forget it. And on this, it was an eight-day trip in far north Queensland, and um, there was a guy on this trip who was a creationist and and argued vehemently through scientific argument that creationism was real. There's another guy on the trip that was just a science nut and just loved looking at nature as this, you know, example of evolution. And it was great. You could see the tension rising between these two oh, people gross. over the three feet. And I it's forget. a journalist thing. It's like, oh, there's going to be a stoush here. This is fantastic. <laughs> yeah, and so one night we're sitting around the campfire and the guy, the science guy, the religious guy is just coming up and saying, scientifically it's proven that dinosaurs are only 4,000 years ago and all that kind of stuff. And, and the science guy just gets up, doesn't say anything, walks down to the river, picks up a bit of slime from the rock. <laughs> the creationist guy, sorry, had just said that, oh, it's ridiculous to think we've come from single-cell organisms. It's just stupid. We couldn't evolve like that. And so he picks up this bit of slime and he just holds it up to the light and he goes, hello, brother. I'm no more intelligent than you. And then went to bed. <laughs> oh. uh, and that's where it stopped. It was great. Um Oh, and you, maybe God did create everything 4,000 years ago or 4,004 BC and and in, gave the impression, buried all the fossils. That's all the other one. Made it a big to, game. Ha, ha, to I'll test troll the faithful. You. 
test, to test the faithful. It's hard enough to believe in it. Why should he test us even more? Anyway. I'll save that for Father Carl. Thank you very much, okay. Paul Williams. Uh, we, for, a, for a totally non-controversial topic. <laughs> Our final topic is inevitably, Greg, the forthcoming federal election here in Australia. Now, we're recording this on Wednesday. On Tuesday night, the Prime Minister deigned uh, to go on ABC's 7.30. He started by painting a rosy picture. He reckons he saved 40,000 lives uh, during the plague. Uh, He didn't reveal how many loaves and fishes that was. Uh, The economy is, quote, stronger than all the G7 countries in the world, which by my count is seven of them. Uh, Unemployment down, strategic security arrangements are in place, etc, etc, etc. And then... All right, if it's that rosy a picture, why are the polls all showing things tight with Labor in a winning position? The elections are always tight, Lee. The last election was tight. In fact, most elections are tight. Yeah, but shouldn't, it, shouldn't it be not tight if it's no. as rosy no, as No, I think said? Australians... Well, no, I didn't paint that picture, Lee. What I was saying is you asked how, you know, how we performed and I set out how we performed. Australians have still got many challenges, the cost of living challenges right now. And that's why it's been so important that the $100 billion improvement that we've been able to achieve just in the last 12 months by the biggest single economic recovery we've seen in seven years means now that we can take action to deal with cost of living pressures right now. That's exactly what we had to do in the pandemic. We got the budget back into balance, worked hard to achieve that before the pandemic hit, which meant we could do JobKeeper, which saved 700,000 jobs, countless businesses and lives. All right, let me put it to you that with the record of performance during COVID, which, as you point out, is better than around the world and the economy doing relatively well, that there can only be one factor that's playing into the um, negative sentiment towards the coalition. And that, without sounding rude, has to be you. Well, it's, it's a tough job and it's been a tough time and people have had a tough time of it over the last three and a half people years. People in your own party? Because they're the ones that seem to be leading oh, the criticism. Look, Lee, there are always people who are disappointed with outcomes that they wanted that they didn't get and, and they'll have an axe to grind. And we've seen that. It's pretty normal in politics, particularly when you're going into an election. So um, the the people I work with every day in my cabinet, we've all been very focused on getting Australia through this crisis. And Australia has come through this crisis stronger than almost any other advanced country in the world. And that's what we've kept focused on. And that's what we'll continue to keep focused on because I know my economic plan is working because Australians are in work. Unemployment has fallen from 5.7% down to 4%. Now, that has happened during a crisis, an economic crisis that was 30 times worse than the global financial crisis that Labor faced, and our employment outcomes are 50% better. I reckon some of those numbers need fact-checking. This Mm. was 30 times worse than the GFC? I don't know. Uh... That's a big call. Who knows? Maybe. I don't know. How do you think Morrison is doing these days? He's not well-liked, is he? Um, No. I I find this really tough. So is he going to pull off another what he would call miracle and win? Mm. He genuinely believes in miracles. The problem with believing in miracle and some divine intervention that made him prime minister, if he loses, he's going to have to accept that the divine intervention kicked him. That'll be very hard for him. I know. So if you believe in miracles, I guess they work both ways. I, I, I feel like I feel like they're panicking. 
I feel like the budget was <laughs> just a bit a like, bit, yes. you know, when you, you go into the, the polling booth and someone hands you a how to vote card and it's like there's a 20 buck bill stapled to the Liberal one saying, please, uh, <laughs> i give you a lobster. <laughs> that pretty much is what's happening. It feels like it, yeah. Um, um, but I, I, I don't know, you know, I mean, I, th- I thought Shorten was going to win the last election, so I, I certainly, you know, I got that wrong. Oh, pretty much everyone got that wrong. I remember being at the election night party at a friend's place and then, you know, it was, we're there and the numbers started coming in and it was all, wait, no, no, this, this is different. This is, this is not how, this is not the television program that was advertised. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know? I think it's interesting too, and this goes with a separate topic, the fact that we were all shocked. Um, yes. And similarly, when, when Trump got in, everyone was shocked. And I think this points to a much bigger story. Maybe I've got time to go into this, but the fact that people have their news now so curated to what they mm. want. Um, mm-hmm. Most people get their news from Facebook or Twitter, and so they're reading stuff that either the algorithms are suggesting or their friends are suggesting. So they're not really being challenged. And then when someone like Trump comes in, they go, oh, my God, I can't believe that happened. I knew no one that voted Trump. Well, no, no. And you never read about anyone who was supporting Trump. And and I think happened. I remember the election night too. I was at the Australian Podcast Awards, and everyone was like, "Oh my god, this is this is happening." I don't. I think it, that's one of the problems. Things that I don't like about the current media is that we have our news. We we just agree. We just read things we agree with, and then we get shocked when the world doesn't go in that direction. I have always doubted that it really is that different. I mean, we may not have chosen to read individual stories, but we certainly chose which TV station to watch or which radio presenter to listen to, which newspaper to read and so on. And we chat about stuff with our friends at the pub or the dinner table. Well, dinner table, we can't choose our family, but broadly speaking, we can choose our friends and who we decide that we will talk about politics with. Mm. And like that's people who are like us because that's why they're friends. Um, that's why we're getting together to talk about things is that we all have similar interests. There might be a bit of arguing around the edges, but I don't yeah, know. Sure right. I, I've often wondered that. I mean, I remember, you know, when I was growing up, you know, we'd come home, we'd all sit down, we'd watch the 7 o'clock news and you'd mm-hmm. watch it from what the news editor thought was the most important story to the least yep. important. And and But now we just flick through to find the story or it usually comes to us that we're most interested in. And we lose that sense of perspective and context in the broader scheme of things. That's a theory. It's a, it's a fair theory. It'd be nice to know. I should get one of the people from QUT on to tell us a bit more about news consumption and production. But, um, but the election, oh, my God, he only holds it, but he holds a majority of one seat. Yes. So part and of there's a lot of seats at under 5% that swing right. either way. So I'm going to have, you know, two bites at this cherry. So one side of me thinks, well, there's only been three times since World War II where Labor's taken government off of coalition government, or 70, 72, and then Hawke in 83 and 2007 with Rudd. Right. And that's it. And you think, well, that's that's a pretty hard thing to do. But then on the other hand, I think he's, only one seat has to be shifted. Yeah. And the polls are less than favourable, I think, is... And then the other throwing to the mix is two things, Clive Palmer and also the fact that I read the other day that it's most likely going to be decided in Queensland again, so that changes things. Mm, it does. Yeah, they like, they like Clive up 
there. Well, the betting market at least has settled down. Um, I have, of course, been uh, following sports bets odds for no particular reason, uh, apart from, of course, the betting market is the ultimate uh, source of all truth and wisdom. Uh, and also misery and bankruptcy and things. So don't don't bet on this unless you have money to spare. But the odds have settled down as we record this yeah, again. Labor dollar thirty three for a win. Coalition three dollars twenty for a win. It's been within a couple of cents either way of that for weeks now. Oh well, if you're a betting man, you'd go for Labor, wouldn't you? You would. Not mm. much of a win, um, but sucks. then. I, I understand that there's only about like a million bucks played on this market anyway, so it's not exactly a big part of sports bets revenue. How were the betting, how were the betting markets last time? Were they more accurate than the polls? Oh, no. No, I think it was all about the same. Yeah. It, it does feel in many ways to me this is a replay of 2019 except we've just been through – three shit years as a nation and we're still in a shit year. Uh, as I record, the rain is starting, La Nina is coming in today, there's a flood warning for tomorrow. Well, not up here on the hill, but, you know, the roof, I'm still thinking about will the roof survive? Uh, taking COVID tests every few days. Um, I don't know. Yeah, it has. Oh, it has we, we're, I'm over it. I think I'm over the election and it hasn't even happened yet. <laughs> Have we haven't even got a yet? date. <laughs> well, it's, it's now either the 14th or the 21st of May unless you sort of mm. have brain worms and think there's going to be a coup or something. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I, look, I find it hard to to call. The, the elections are started by such a small percentage of the population now. So um, Yeah, that's uh, true. It, it's it's hard to get a head around it, but I, I think they're panicking. Yeah. Oh yeah. It sounds like there's, it. there's all the signs of that. It was Napoleon, I believe, who said, "Never interrupt your enemy when he's making a mistake." <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you sit back and you just watch that one. Yeah. I, I did see Elbow's um, budget reply speech, and I, it did feel more like a campaign launch. And he he was you know he was on fire. I thought, but who knows? Yeah, I saw him at the National Press Club. Well, on on the telly you know, the week before or whenever it was. And again, yeah, this is a coherent message. James Jeffries is his speechwriter, though, so some credit to, to James. Yeah, probably. Uh, um, okay, what's next for you? I, I, don't, I don't mean when we run out of talking. Like Motherlode, <laughs> as I said, fantastic series. Everyone should go listen to that. What's in the pipeline? Well, I, you know what? Nothing just yet. I, I'm actually oh, okay. um, open to offers. But... um. I hope to get my teeth into another another good story, and and I do like I do like um, podcasts. I, I mentioned that I saw this was on your list. I thought about it last night, but um, when I first started in the media, you know, we were making radio features, and they were authoritative and they were voice and grab mm-hmm. and voice and grab and music and things, and podcasts are just they just fire up the imagination so much more, you know, and and that. They're what it's worth. The length is what it's worth. There's no perfect length for a podcast, which I, which I think is brilliant. And I think it, and I love this coming from a sound background too, but also with Motherload. So um, Martin Peralta was our sound designer. Brilliant. And he does move through 80s music to 90s music <laughs> beautifully. Oh, it does. It I, you, love, I love the sound design. Yeah. It's it's really good. And uh, using things like AI voices. Um, mm. uh 
they're amazing. I'd never used them before. So you can, you know, dial up an accent and you can dial up a gender and you can you can dial up different inflections. I haven't gone that um, far. Uh, people will know. I mean, it's, it's, I use a computer thing for the, the intro and outro just for the those hmm. messages and tags, but that's just what's on the Mac. It's not using any of the fancy new ones. They're getting better. I mean, I feel bad because we're not paying artists, of course, but yeah. um, uh, but it, it's but I thought you can actually use your imagination so much better with a with a podcast than a radio feature, I think. And I think, especially with television, I think audio is much better at doing that than than television. Yeah. Can I just tell you a story? I won't take long. Please do. I never forget when I was studying sound design and sound engineering years and years ago. Um, I, I saw this little video clip, and it had these two high heel shoes walking along a, a park pathway. Mm. Music was lovely. And, and then these, this close-up of the feet, and the, the feet came upon some obviously male shoes, and then the female feet and shoes were just lifted slightly off the ground. And two completely different sound designs. One, she was clearly being embraced and kissed, and the second one, she was clearly being strangled. And I thought, <sighs> the power of audio is so good. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Ain't so, it just? So I'll, I'll another podcast, hopefully. Um, I've got some ideas. I need someone to fund them. Um, All right, but but we'll see. Something will come Le- up. Links links to Greg Miller in, in the in the podcast webpage, of course. Uh, he's very easy to find, uh, and he will accept your money. Greg Miller, thank you <laughs> so much. Thank you, still. It's been great fun. Right, before I go, a few loose ends to tie up. Uh, if you remember a few weeks ago, we had Leo Puglisi on as, as our guest talking about Six News. You will recall uh, that he's the uh, 14-year-old lad, I think he's still 14, yes, uh, who's created his own little news channel on YouTube. Uh, well, since we spoke, uh, this week he broadcast an interview with Prime Minister of Australia, Mr Scott Morrison, uh, which has received a lot of attention. It's very good. I've linked to that. And also this week, he was on ABC TV's The Drum talking about that interview and and even uh, spoke with The Chaser in their podcast uh, this week. So I've linked to all of those. Uh, he is certainly someone to watch. Uh, we recorded this on uh, Wednesday. It is now Friday afternoon, the 8th of April. Uh, the betting odds... No real change. A dollar thirty-four for a Labor win. Uh, Three dollars ten for a Coalition win. And we did ask the question earlier: How does the betting market compare this time with the twenty nineteen election? And uh, Grog's gamut, Mr. Greg Jericho on the Twitters, uh, has actually found that out. He did this um, yesterday, so Thursday night. He noted that uh, back in 2019, this uh, the, this many days out from the the election or thereabouts, I mean, we don't actually know when the election is, but it'll be the 21st of May, I reckon. Uh, they were paying a mere $1.13 for a Labor win and $5.50 for a coalition win. That That is just such a marked, yeah, it's going to be Labor, uh, compared with this time... That's possibly due to the way the betting market is thinking rather than necessarily what the odds are, but I don't know. I don't know. 
The election will be announced any day now. Uh, if it's not announced by uh, this coming Monday, it'll have to be the 21st of May. Uh, if he wants uh, to knock the election off on the 14th of May, uh, he does have to announce it before Monday. Monday being the latest day, Monday the 11th. We shall see. That's all the edict for now. Uh, if you want to know more, all the credits, the links and uh, how to tip are over at the 9pmedict.com slash tip to tip. The next episode will be in two weeks' time, almost certainly with John Birmingham. Until then, I'm still Gerian. Wash your hands. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.